I'm not like of this uh, weird brand of name hate that someone with the last name Ruggles has. Oh, <laughs> oh shit! Out of nowhere, <laughs> Peter's coming back swinging. I quit. There's. <laughs> Welcome to I'd Buy That for a Dollar, a podcast about inexpensive, common, and underappreciated records that are waiting to be rediscovered. I'm your host, Sean Hartman, graphic designer for Captain Ron Serial. I am co-host Jeremy Ruggles, and I am maintaining a solid 15 speakers to one Jeremy ratio. And I am your co-host, Peter Cook, Vision Quest Revisionist. And part-time crossing guard. <laughs> the the crossing guard, is that more of a passion project or is that what pays the bills? Actually, I think I'm a revisionist of the crossing guard movie. Oh, okay. <laughs> Just keeps on going. What? I don't want to know about that movie. Let's move on. <laughs> oh man, check it out. 90s classic. Uh, well, hey y'all, you want to talk about a record instead of movies? Wait. Is Chris Farley in Crossing Guard? I feel like he would be. No, I think it's like Sean Penn <laughs> and Jack Nicholson. Oh, not interested then. What record? <laughs> well, I have brought a record by the group Hamilton, Joe Frank, and Reynolds. It's their self-titled debut from 1971, released on Dunhill Records in May of that year. It reached number 59 on the Billboard Top 200 thanks to the success of the group's debut single that I think most people will recognize when we play it, even if they don't recognize this long-winded moniker of a band name. Well, the song is Don't Pull Your Love. Side B, track one. Anything. If I threw away my pride 
admission to make guys lay it on us i have never knowingly listened to the band chicago but feel pretty certain that they sound like that am i off base (laughs) you're not entirely wrong with that assumption i think chicago was pretty high on the list of like spotify recommended similar artists so yeah i think you nailed it with that one yeah they got the horns Nice. I don't know that they have the horns. I don't know what they have. Like people who I trust have told me that they have music worth listening to, but I've never made that leap to actually put it on. So I I think I have a, a similar knowledge of Chicago. And the thing that I discovered from a few people playing me tracks over the years is that they're one of those bands where you know way more of their material than you ever realized. And you probably thought all of the Chicago songs you've heard were done by other artists. Yeah. And the other thing is they have a lot better material than you would expect. But yeah, they they had a big horn section and then similar to this group, kind of a mix of like pop rock and a little bit of roots rock. You hear a little bit of country, a little bit of jazz, that kind of thing. Yeah. There's some pretty gnarly, like avant-garde stuff on the first Chicago album. And then eventually you get to the 80s and it's, you know, cheese level 1000. (laughs) Not to continue talking about a band that we're not actually covering their record this episode, but Chicago was also tight friends with Earth, Wind and Fire and they would often tour together. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Sorry, I brought up Chicago. (laughs) No, no, it's uh Totally fine. And I think eventually we will do a Chicago record on this program. It's been in the back of my mind. For sure. But that song, I'm guessing most people recognize that one. It was a huge hit. It went to number one on the U.S. Cash Box Top 100 and number four on the Billboard Hot 100. Very big song in 1971. Actually, a few artists of note covered it. That Later that same year, Sam and Dave did a version of it, a very different take on it. and. In maybe a few years later, Glenn Campbell also covered it. Oh, that makes sense. Yeah. Glenn Campbell seems like the perfect fit for that kind of song. <laughs> I didn't listen to that one. And I'm not saying that as a dig. Like I, I've been growing to uh, enjoy Glenn Campbell a lot more lately and we should totally cover him sometime too. Oh yeah. He's, he's great. Uh, the, the song was written by an East coast songwriting team, Dennis Lambert and Brian Potter, who had written the song one tin soldier which I'm guessing oh, okay. we know that song. But it was done by a few people. Coven was one of the groups who recorded that song. Yeah, their they're only like normal <laughs> song that was a hit. Everything else is satanic <laughs> as fuck, but yeah. they had this like kind of cheesy pop song. Very strange. It makes them all the weirder for that. Mm-hmm. Uh, they Lambert and Potter later wrote and produced for the Four Tops, including Ain't No Woman Like the One I've Got which was, I believe, the following year, 1972. Background on this record for me. And this is going to reiterate 
the origins of this podcast. We haven't done that in a while. Sean found this when we were working in a record store together. And at the time, the stock in the store was, in our estimation, there wasn't a lot of stuff in there that would appeal to people if they just walked in, people with general knowledge of, of records, music. There wasn't a lot that jumped out at the time. And so we started going through the bins going, well, what's all this other stuff that we don't know as, as you know, people we think we're passionate music lovers? What's all this other stuff? And we started to unearth some real gems, some of which I now know is, you know, stuff classic of its time, but unknown to people born in the 1980s. <laughs> and this was one of them. Sean and I, we each had a turntable set up with headphones and we would just get a stack of records that we didn't recognize play a few cuts from each side just to see what they were, get a general description of them, put a description on the record so people might have an idea of what it is if they're just looking at it. And this one, Sean, turns to me after he puts this one on and says, this is some really good blue-eyed soul right here. And I listened and recognized that song. I didn't know any of the other songs on it, but I was like, oh, yes, this song. I, I've been hearing this my whole life and grocery store speakers. Do you <laughs> it is a grocery store classic for sure. I, I remember that experience, but I don't remember it as sharply as you do, as always. I didn't remember those exact words, but I just also wanted to note that part of the reason why we were able to do this project of just listening to records on turntables and handwriting reviews is because we also had very few customers at that point. Yeah. Yeah. There weren't a lot of people coming through. That was before. Uh, no. The store moved and the game was upped considerably after that. True. <laughs> but that's all in the past. But, it's, but it is how where we, we got the seeds of this podcast were planted in doing that and just realizing there's so much more out there than you realize. There's always more. There's always new things to discover from the past. Yeah, I mean, the, the general conversation of when I pitched you guys the idea of doing this podcast was just saying like, hey, what if we revisited that concept we had at the record store and turned it into a, into a podcast, basically. Yeah, and here we are, a year and a half later. Here we are. Many new friends, many new listeners. So, Sean, I, th I think this might have been that the copy. I don't recall for sure, but this might be the copy that I might have picked it up after that moment and uh, bought it, took it home. Have you kept up with this record since then? Have you listened to it since those original moments when we found it? All right, I'm going to be super honest with you right now. I bought a copy probably not long after that, and I didn't really listen to it a whole lot after I bought it. And then I think a year ago, I was starting to go back through my record collection and find stuff I didn't listen to anymore to sell, and I sold this record. <laughs> I put it on again and was like, nah, not feeling it. But and that might have been more than a year ago. I don't quite remember. But mm -hmm. uh, in getting ready for this episode, I've been revisiting the record and thinking, man, I should buy this again. This is this is resonating with me again now. So well, I think that you're I by, your, it, by your own rules, you have to because you want to own every single album that we've covered on this podcast. True. Oh, definitely. Every single one, whether I like it or not. <laughs> I've listened to it a fair amount over the years. That was going back seven years ago. And I, every time I go back to it, I really like it. This is my cup of tea. 
that sort of AM soft rock and some blue eyed soul. And I guess, should we address that term at all? I guess if we want to, as we go into the episode, maybe we should see, let's get the dirt from Jeremy. I had a bit of an existential crisis listening to this album yesterday, driving home from work. I had never heard this before a few days ago and I'm driving home and I'm thinking to myself, like, man, these words are just dumb. I feel like I'm getting hit with the dumb stick. And then I'm like, Jeremy, these are just songs of a universal theme of love. And, like, you should learn to appreciate the connectedness of feeling the same thing that everyone else can feel. And then my brain was, like, pushing back, like, no, this is a lacks an individual expression that stimulates me intellectually. And then, (laughs) so I was just having, would you say that this is typical of like your normal thought process while driving around? Uh, I, (laughs) this probably isn't the first time this has happened to me, (laughs) but this album really seemed to like prod that particular line of thinking back out of me. So, yeah. That's my experience, though I will say there are musically definitely some very interesting elements going on. Mm-hmm. At times, almost like prog rocky, it felt, just in like its sort of complicated lines and like harmonic shifts. And there's a lot of musically, intellectually stimulating things going on, not lyrically, though. You know, I think in a similar way, that's probably why I, I parted ways with this record before. The thing that drew me in the most was the musically complex and innovative uh, aspects of it, and especially the points where they're, you know, fusing these different genres, which has always been a thing that has drawn me in. But the the vocals didn't really do it for me as much, especially on songs like that one, Don't Pull Your Love Out, that which is one of my least favorite songs on the album, interestingly enough. I just thought there, there wasn't as much depth to the vocal delivery or the music on there. Again, I rarely pay attention to the lyrics, but the, the songs on here that do the, the most for me are the ones that get really interesting and have all those different musical influences and roots rock stuff going on. And the stuff that also has the vocal harmonies is more interesting to me on here. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I found that when I did pay attention to the lyrics more, when I focused more lyrically on the album, I didn't get as much out of it than if I, than if I just listened to the music because I've musically, I've always, it's what I've always really connected with on this album. And I, when preparing to do this episode, I wanted to see if there was anything lyrically that hadn't aged well or, or jumped out and there wasn't too much of that so much as just yeah it's that's not the focal point i feel like the lyrics for sure which it doesn't always have to be you know some records can just be enjoyable for that universal theme of love (laughs) i think the reason that musically this hits so hard even though this is their first album hamilton joe frank and reynolds We'll talk more about their background before this, but it was produced by Steve Barry, who had been a songwriter, producer, and musician for the Grassroots, along with P.F. Sloan, a frequent collaborator of his. They did Secret Agent Man for Johnny Rivers and Eve of Destruction by Barry McGuire. And Steve Barry was also the A&R guy for Dunhill Records. He signed huge acts like Steppenwolf, Three Dog Night, Steely Dan, 
Jimmy Buffett, the Four Tops, and Dusty Springfield. And on top of that, the strings and horns were arranged and conducted by Jimmy Haskell, also who worked with the grassroots closely. And he also arranged songs, big songs like Bobby Gentry's Ode to Billy Joe, which is a favorite of mine. Are either of you familiar with that song? Oh, yeah. Oh, definitely. I love that. That's perfection for me. Simon and Garfunkel's Bridge Over Troubled Water is another one that Jimmy Haskell arranged and conducted. Later on, much later, Blondie, The Tide is High. And he he scored a lot of films, too, most of which I didn't recognize the title of. One that stood out was Night of the Lepus, which is the one about the giant mutated killer rabbits. (laughs) 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 I used to play on TV when I was a teenager. Some, Some real pros doing the arrangements and production on here. And there was a follow-up single to Don't Pull Your Love. It was Annabella, which was written by Arnold Martin and Morrow, a songwriting team, and originally recorded by Dave D. in the UK. Now we're going to play Annabella next, which is side A, track two. And I want to note, my wife Ellen pointed out to me that the melodically, there's a similarity to the big star song, September Girls. See if you can pick it out where it happens in the song as we listen. So I think that song is a pretty solid example of the term blue-eyed soul that we mentioned in the last section but didn't go any further into. It's got a lot of those soul influences to it, but obviously this is not what you would typically think of as a soul group. You know, it's three white guys making soul-influenced music, but it's also got that pop influence and the country influence, and that kind of approach to music you know, white people making soul music with a lot of other non-soul influences is typically what I think of with the term blue-eyed soul. It was also, especially in the early 70s like this, when you had those AM gold hits, groups like the Righteous Brothers were 
heavily soul influenced, but you couldn't quite just call him a soul band. And then the other side of it is David Bowie had his period that he called the plastic soul period when he made records like Young Americans. And that was a similar approach where he was making soul music, but he was intentionally doing it in a way that felt a little bit sterile or plastic, knowing that he could not really convincingly recreate that like super authentic passionate soul sound so that's my take on blue-eyed soul i don't know if peter if you have a anything you'd like to add to that only that i wasn't really sure if the term had come under any kind of criticism the term or genre and so i just in a cursory glance it looks like it has a little bit some people i think it was gil scott heron has sort of seen it as a further co-option of black music sure yeah and it's i've definitely always thought of it as a a weird term especially because it's one of the few terms that is supposed to mean like only white people making it i have seen other people try and lump in some people of color who have made stuff that is more similar aesthetically to this but yeah it it seemed like a problematic title for sure i know i think it was daryl hall said he he doesn't like the term blue-eyed soul which is funny because that's one of the first groups i think of hollow notes when i think of blue-eyed soul oh absolutely well i think it's it's like a well-known story of daryl hall that after the song i can't go for that became a hit he wrote down in his diary that day that he'd finally made it as a soul singer (laughs) oh man i love that song are we ever going to be able to do any hollow notes on here we could do just about any hollow notes record honestly that'll be the day well wait that's a buddy holly song (laughs) anyway (laughs) most of the songs that we're listening to well all the songs we're listening to from this record are sang by dan hamilton although that one had a co-lead vocal from joe frank as well i totally hear that september girls big star similarity this would have been a few years before that maybe alex chilton subconsciously was uh, taken from this melody a little bit. I don't know if either of you heard it. Uh, I'm not as familiar with Big Star as I should be. That's one of those just like legendary bands I've always known about. I know I would like them. I know I should like them more. Every time I remember to stream some of their music, I just think, man, this is great. I should listen to this more. And for some reason, I still have not had like a genuine Big Star phase yet. Yeah, Yeah, well, sometimes you got to leave stuff for later in life. True. (laughs) I got something to look forward to. (laughs) Yeah. So that one was a minor hit. It reached number 46. The Hamilton, Joe Frank, and Reynolds, I thought they were a one-hit wonder, but I found out differently in researching this. And we'll get into that, but who the heck are these guys with this silly name? Well, we have Dan Hamilton on lead and rhythm guitar. Last name. Joe Frank. What? Keep going. <laughs> oh, <laughs> Joe Frank Carollo on bass. First and middle name. And Yeah. And Tommy Reynolds on percussion, flute, name. Vi- he's on percussion, flute, vibes, steel drums, piano. He's the multi-instrumentalist of the band. So when they were trying to come up with a name, they tried variations of their last names and they couldn't find any way to make Carollo fit no matter how they tried incorporating it. So they dropped it entirely and went with Joe Frank, his first and middle name. <laughs> I, for years, have been confused by this, and that doesn't make me feel any better about it. I don't know why they couldn't have just been Hamilton, Carollo, and Reynolds. Well, so that's actually the entire 
point of the joke on MST3K when they reference this band, which I know Jeremy and I have watched that video and Peter has not. But the question that they have on there is how many people are actually in this band? Because without, you know, looking at the album cover, or even knowing it, is it four people? Is it five? Is it a duo? Is it Hamilton, Joe, Frank and Reynolds? <laughs> you know, is it Hamilton, Joe and Frank Reynolds? What's going on here? Yeah. I'm sure it caused a lot of confusion, but it also became a brand for them. I would bet they don't use his last name, Carollo. Is that it? Yeah. It's pr- probably the same reason Bob Dylan is Bob Dylan and not Bob Zimmerman. It's probably a bit too <laughs> ethnic for the uh, you know, executives of that day. Yeah, I think you're onto something. I was thinking that too. And it, it, we are talking 1970 here. The three of them had played together in various Los Angeles groups, including the T-Bones, who had a hit in 1965 with an instrumental called No Matter What Shape Your Stomach's In, because it was based on the melody to an Alka-Seltzer jingle. However, they were not, none of these guys were on that recording. The recordings were made by members of the Wrecking Crew, like Tommy Tedesco, Carol Kay, and Hal Blaine, But when the record became a surprise hit, the musicians refused to tour because they could make more money as session players in Los Angeles than going out on the road. So the label Liberty took the liberty of creating, (laughs) I didn't wait a minute, (laughs) did not, (laughs) that was, that was silly. So Liberty took the, (laughs) I really didn't mean to do that. Oh, just own it. It's, it's such a Peter (laughs) statement. Just own it. Stick with it. So the label Liberty took the liberty of creating a public T-Bones to appear on album covers as well as on TV and in concert. So Dan Hamilton, along with his brother Judd, as well as Joe Frank Carollo and Tommy Reynolds were all in this band. And they were like teenagers at the time. And after the T-Bones disbanded, Joe Frank joined the new Christy Minstrels. That big folk group. He was member number 83. He was the 83rd member of the new Christie minstrels. It was only brief that he was in that band. After leaving, he teamed up again with former T-Bone bandmate, Dan Hamilton, and they formed a duo, the brothers. They performed covers of Motown and blues songs, as well as stuff by Chicago and blood, sweat and tears. So there you go, Jeremy, with your, initial assertion at the top there is some chicago yeah that's i'm basing that just on the cover of chicago albums and what i assume they sound like though i don't know the first thing about them or i don't know a song of theirs don't you dare say a name of a song by them right now don't do it move along (laughs) i was just gonna say that's it sounds like you're just developing really good dollar bin instincts you know you can't always judge a record by its cover but you can have a pretty good idea going in what you're going to be hearing yeah. Yeah, you're uh you've got some well-developed, well-honed skills there, Jeremy. Thank you. So uh Reynolds, Tommy Reynolds, meanwhile, while uh Hamilton and Joe Frank were performing as the brothers, Reynolds was playing in a group called Shango, during which time he learned how to build and play steel drums. I think he learned a lot more instruments during that time and then eventually joined up with his former T-Bones bandmates in 1970. And they still called themselves the brothers at that point. Steve Barry at Dunhill offered the trio a recording contract. 
So when the group was signed, they had no original material. And they were given Don't Pull Your Love, which they put together a killer version for with the help of Jimmy Haskell's arrangement and some of the Wrecking Crew. On this album, there's Larry Nectal on keyboards. He was one of the big prominent members of the Wrecking Crew. He's the piano on Bridge Over Troubled Water. He actually won a Grammy for his performance on that, which is unusual for a studio musician. He was proficient on a lot of other instruments. He's actually the bassist on the first Doors album, like on Light My Fire and Soul Kitchen. He later, shortly after this album was made, Larry Nectal joined Bread, who we did an episode on. Yeah. Yes, and very similar vibes for sure. These records pair very well. Yeah, totally. We also have Ollie Mitchell, the trumpeter from Herb Alpert's Tijuana Brass. He had joined the Wrecking Crew in the 1960s. Sid Sharp, violinist. He had worked with the Ramsey Lewis Trio, David Axelrod and Mason Williams prior to this. Joe Carrero Jr. on drums. He was from Paul Revere and the Raiders. So we got some real pros supplying the music here and i think that's why it hits so damn hard definitely i especially love the drums on this record i gotta say the the stuff he's laying down is just so on point from start to finish yeah the drums and the horns both stuck out for me as strong and interesting in the arrangements Mm -hmm. yeah i mean that the intro for don't pull your love it just grabs you immediately with those those horns and the drums just the way they kind of command your attention instantly So once they had their lead single, Don't Pull Your Love, they had to put together a proper debut album. And so they took a couple other Lambert Potter songs, as well as several from Tommy Reynolds. Now, Dan Hamilton, he, interestingly, he only has one song on here that he penned. He, and it's weird because he had become a successful songwriter as a teenager. He had penned the hit instrumental Diamond Head for The Ventures when he was 16 And so it's strange to me that on this first album, he only has one song credited to him. But it also happens to be my favorite song, which is It Takes the Best. And I'd like to feature that next. Side A, track four. I know it won't be long 
Love that one. It was co-written with Tommy Reynolds. Dan Hamilton and Tommy Reynolds wrote that. So Tommy Reynolds left the group in 1972 and was replaced by a guy named Alan Dennison. But the group's name remained Hamilton, Joe Frank, and Reynolds. Too good to let go. <laughs> Can't let go of a beautiful just, name like that. Just rolls right off the tongue, right? Um, so I was like, why are the why would that be? Why would they hold it? Why would they be so intent on holding on to that? Well, right at the same time, they signed a contract with Playboy Records, which you know that you guys know that Playboy had a label in the seventies. Yeah, which had some like surprisingly good music on it. Too. Yeah, yeah, totally. And I think that one of the stipulations was, you know, Playboy are signing a known entity and they told them you can't change your name. You got to keep Hamilton, Joe Frank and Reynolds. So the, and funny enough, the revised lineup scored the group's only number one hit. And it was also the only number one hit on Playboy records. That was in 1975 with the song fallen in love written by Dan Hamilton. And, and I wasn't sure, do I know this song? I put it on. Baby, baby, falling in love. Oh, yeah. Everyone knows that song. That's a ubiquitous song. I had no idea that was Hamilton, Joe Frank, and, well, not Reynolds. It was actually Dennison. But the following year, they did finally change their name to Hamilton, Joe Frank, and Dennison. But then they only released one album under that name before disbanding. Coincidence? (laughs) Yeah, I know. (laughs) (laughs) They lost the brand, right? That recognized they lost that sweet, sweet HJFR brand. <laughs> <laughs> All the other guys are still alive except Dan Hamilton. He passed away in late 1994 at the age of 48 due to complications from Cushing syndrome, which is a rare hormone disorder. I don't really know. I wasn't able to find much information about what the other guys might be up to musically nowadays. I They're really surprisingly, considering this band have two pretty big hits that almost everyone would recognize, there is very little information on them out there. There weren't many YouTube videos of live performances. There was, thankfully, one book that I was able to find online, and of course I was only able to read like previews of it, but it did give me a little more information. So I just wanted to shout out that author real quick. That book was the music of Hamilton, Joe Frank and Reynolds by author Robert Reynolds. I don't think of any relation, but who knows? Maybe, maybe he's related to Reynolds. So Sean, what did you find for our Spotify playlist? Uh, I had fun making this playlist, digging into, you know, a lot of dollar bin records with some kind of lame looking dudes on the cover who ended up making some really good music. And I also got a lot of hot tips from you, Peter. Thanks for helping out on the playlist. Oh, my pleasure. We got some artists that we've covered before in the podcast, Buzzy Lynn Hart and the chambers brothers i put the four tops version of ain't no woman like the one i got on there which is one of my favorite songs um and some other kind of roots rock inspired guys leon russell canned heat jackson brown boz skaggs jesse colin young from the young bloods is on there and uh the orleans the rascals dusty springfield spencer davis group and then we put the the hit from the t-bones that instrumental hit 
no matter what shape your stomach. Elka Seltzer song. <laughs> the Elka Seltzer jam. So thirty-two songs, two hours long. You can find that on Spotify by searching "I'd Buy That Podcast," all one word, to find this and all other season two playlists. Beautiful. Well, I think that's all we really need to say about Hamilton, Joe Frank, and Reynolds. I think we've covered them well. And I do have one little last bit of information on the song I'd like to go out on, which is the song Long Road. There are some women background vocalists on a few tracks on here. We have Ginger Blake from The Honeys, which were the female counterpart to The Beach Boys. They were produced by Brian Wilson. There's also Maxine Waters Willard, part of the group The Waters, with her siblings Oren, Luther, and Julia. They've done tons of session work, and they were featured in that documentary 20 Feet from Stardom. And then we have Vanetta Fields. She was the backing vocalist for all kinds of American and British rock and pop acts of the 60s and 70s, Ike and Tina Turner, Humble Pie, Barbara Streisand, The Rolling Stones. She's uh, the voice on Tumbling Dice along with Clyde King. And she's also the woman singing on Shine On You Crazy Diamond by Pink Floyd. Interesting. Yeah, she did some live work for them too. I also want to jump in with uh, Maxine Willard Waters. This was actually one of her earliest uh, pieces of session work. Mm -hmm. She'd only done like four of the records previous to this. And then pretty much immediately after this was pumping out like 20 records a year. And it was just on all kinds of crazy legendary tracks. Yeah. It's it's one of those lists where you don't even know where to start or end. So (laughs) just check her out. Yeah. So I was, I was really that documentary 20 feet from stardom was also around the same time that that we were doing the project that we mentioned in the record store where you just really start to, it it dawns on you how many people that aren't known names are behind this music. Absolutely. All right. So what song are we going out on? Long road side, a track six. Thank you so much for tuning into yet another episode of I'd buy that for a dollar. My name is Peter Cook Hamilton. I'm Sean Joe Frank Hartman. And I am Jeremy Just Struggles. I'm not Reynolds. Just kidding. I'm Jeremy Reynolds. <laughs> All right. Long road. Sometimes it's so hard To see the tears that fall From your eyes I realize that you're A shell